The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our first sermons dealt with the heart of the passage. If you want to imagine it for a moment like a, like a target, the center is what we've already hit multiple times. Now we're going to be looking at the surrounding area, the, the less significant but the peripheral uh, kind of background information. So today we're going to examine the method of the Holy Spirit, what took place here in Acts chapter 2. Specifically, we're going to focus on the following points. The genesis of language, the gift of tongues, the goal of the Holy Spirit, and the gathering of believers. But I would ask that at this time, before we dig in, you please join me as I pray that this sermon would bring much glory to Christ. God, I thank you that this morning uh, we are able to come before your word, your holy inspired word that you have graciously given to us. God, I pray that none of us would overlook it, None of us would think little of it. None of us would go past it. None of us would focus on the inaccurate, inaccurate things about it. But instead, God, I pray that you would give us clarity and understanding from your word this morning. And I pray as we approach very difficult things, very controversial things, you would give us grace to love one another and to be able to think carefully and examine the scriptures together to see what is actually being taught. And Lord, for anyone in this room that doesn't know you, I pray that you would give them the understanding of what the gospel is all about this morning. And for anyone who does know you, for those who are truly following you, I pray that we would together exult in Christ, that we would lift him high through the way we worship in, for my part, preaching this sermon, and for those who are hearing, that they would have ears to hear, worshipful ears today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Language is absolutely fascinating. I love to study languages. I Actually, I just got this huge chart. It's in my house. Um, it's going to be hanging in my office probably this coming week. Uh, and it compares all of the alphabets of most of the languages that are common languages here in the world. I love that stuff. There are roughly 6,500 languages spoken in the world today. And the biggest challenge is in getting acclimated to any new place. If you've ever moved from one nation to another, the most difficult thing to do is to get used to the language, to learn the language, to learn the people. You have to know how to talk to the people. If you've ever ever done much international travel, you will know that there are difficulties in trying to get even simple things done if you can't communicate with the people you're trying to talk to. For example, supposedly people from Mississippi and people from Scotland speak the same language, supposedly, but try to get something done with two people who are entrenched in their own accents from those different places. And they share a language. They share a vocabulary, yet just because of a little twinge in accent, it's almost impossible to know what they're actually saying. I love language. I love the variety of language. I love the way that you can figure out different, it kind of digs deeper into the meaning of words. You study your own language more when you have to try to express it in a different way to somebody in a different language. I love that words are able to transmit deep realities and even emotions to people. I love that poetry has the ability to resonate with somebody so deeply and on like a soul level. I love that God has chosen to communicate to us using words. 
He could have just drawn pictures in the sky or on the planet, but he chooses to describe and define and express himself using words. But I hate not being able to communicate with somebody. I hate not being able to understand them and them not being able to understand me. I want to be able to talk with people. Language is so delicate that if you speak a hundred words to somebody and they misunderstand one of them, it can potentially undermine everything that you have just said. But this division of language, it's a barrier. It is like a wall between peoples. And this division was designed and created by God himself. The separation that we experience from one another was brought about by God in Genesis chapter 11. A few generations after the flood, all of the people on the earth were gathered together in one place. And they determined to build a tower to the sky in order to make a name for themselves. Make a name before who? Make a name before God. It was functionally a way for them to say, See God, we are amazing. We do not need you. We're brilliant. We're capable. We can get to the sky, or the literal word is, we can get to heaven without you. And here is the way God responds in Genesis 11, verses 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Notice what takes place here. They build the biggest, best thing they can comprehend, and God just bends down to take note. Hmm, look at that little mud tower. And he knew that these people were going to continue building things in opposition to him. He recognized that they were unified around one purpose, one cause. Oftentimes, when our house is quiet, my wife will say, it's too quiet. The kids are too quiet. What's, what's happening right now? And if you're a parent, you know what that's like when it's so quiet that it's suspicious, and that means that it's time to check on the children because when it's quiet and they're getting along, it means they're probably working together against you. They are unified in purpose to disobey or break the rules. Everyone that's a parent of at least two children knows this to be true. The people who are building the tower, they were unified. They were of one heart and one mind in the wrong direction. It was their goal to oppose God. So God reminded them, you are not in charge. I am the one who is in charge here, and I am powerful. So you think you've got this all figured out? Watch how simply I can destroy that unity that you have. And like it was with a snap of a finger, he changed their languages. It must have been absolutely chaos. Can you imagine waking up one morning and not being able to communicate with your neighbor or with your boss or possibly even your own parents or children that you have always been used to talking to? There had never been any kind of difficulty with this language barrier in the past, and now there is literally no way you can get across what you're trying to say. So what's the point of that text? What is the point of what is happening? Why am I saying this and sharing this with you when we're talking about Acts chapter 2? Simply this, 
The sign that God was giving by dividing the language is that he did not want the people to be unified because their unification was a unification of rebellion. Their rejection of God was their rallying cry and their sin was their banner. This is the backdrop for what is going to take place in Acts chapter 2. From this time forward, God was always speaking to these people on earth through the language of Abraham and the language of Moses and the language of David. But God is worthy to be praised in every tongue and by every tribe. And that means every language. And what takes place on the day of Pentecost was meant to facilitate the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. Which brings us now to our second point, the gift of tongues. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Where the world was unified in rebellion against God, which caused division of language, the church was born to be united around Christ and his gospel. So God gave the gift on that day to overcome that barrier. The gift of speaking in tongues was in operation during these early days of the church, but let's take a moment here to clear up some misunderstandings that our modern world has about this gift. The modern Pentecostal movement and those who are more charismatic in persuasion claim that this gift of speaking in tongues is normative and should continue to be practiced by people in the church today. However, we're going to see a few quick things that refute that practice and that claim. First, there are things that were taking place on the day of Pentecost that everybody would agree are not normative. They are not continued, and they are not practiced today. For example, even those who believe that we should be speaking in tongues do not believe that there is going to be some fire that shows up in the room and that begins to show itself physically sitting on people's heads. I have been around a lot of Pentecostals. I've been in charismatic churches quite regularly growing up. I was Pentecostal, and I can tell you that never happens, and nobody has ever said that it happens because nobody thinks this is normal or continuing. Nor do they believe that the arrival of the Holy Spirit comes with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They don't believe that it sounds like a hurricane, so much so that everyone outside of the church building is like, what was that? Everyone who was outside in the market square heard the arrival of the Holy Spirit, but that is not normative. That does not continue. These events are unique to the arrival of the Holy Spirit here at Pentecost. So not everything taking place in this chapter is normative or supposed to continue in the church today. Secondly, most of what is done in churches today under the guise of speaking in tongues has actually no relationship to what we see taking place here. Listen to how the crowd responds when the apostles begin to preach and teach in the public square in verses 7 through 8. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
The word tongue literally means language in the Bible. And the apostles were not speaking in gibberish, nor were they just utilizing monosyllabic repetition. If you've ever been in a Pentecostal service where they speak in tongues, you know that what they are saying, it doesn't take a linguist or a philologist to say, that is not a language. That is monosyllabic repetition. That is chanting. But the apostles were supernaturally being given the ability to speak a real human language that they had never studied. In fact, verses 9 through 11 reveals that there were at least 15 different languages that were being spoken. It recognizes that there are Parthenians and Medes and Eliamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and, and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And then they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues or languages, the mighty works of God. Now, just to clarify something here, each one of those places had multiple languages languages associated with it. So this might be speaking about 15 languages. It might be speaking about 50 languages. But what is true that we know for certain from the text is people from these places were hearing in their own languages. So the gift of tongues has no relation to whatever is being done in many churches today because they are not actually using languages. The actual biblical gift of tongues is the supernatural ability to communicate the message of God while transcending the barrier of division that God himself set in place at Babel. Third, the gift of tongues is not found as primary or as a primary practice in the early church. In the entire book of Acts, there are only four occasions where people ever speak in tongues. And each time, it's at the origination point when the gospel first comes to a people group. Also, it's important to understand and recognize that after the book of Acts, is, it, the gift of tongues is only mentioned in one other New Testament book. It is completely ignored by almost the entire New Testament canon. The only New Testament book after Acts that speaks about the gift of tongues is 1 Corinthians, which was written very early in Paul's ministry. And it seems as though the gift was already in major decline or possibly had already ceased by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts. And definitely before the New Testament canon was closed. Fourth, no faithful Christian ever practiced the gift of tongues from the time of the early church until April 9th, 1906. That is what is commonly known as the Azusa Street Revival. That is where the modern form of what we have so-called tongues began. But from roughly the years 55 to the year 1906, there was Nothing. There are no reputable Christian scholars or churches or individuals or movements that believed that their calling was to speak in tongues. One early example is from the African theologian Augustine, who wrote something about this in the year roughly 400. Now, if you don't know Augustine, he is the most influential theologian in the history of Christianity outside of those who wrote the New Testament. Most of what took place in the Reformation, what we call the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther and John Calvin, was them looking back to this man and his theology. And this is what this man said about the year 400. He said, when hands are laid on in baptism, people do not receive the Holy Spirit in such a way that they speak with the tongues of all the nations. 
nor are the sick now healed by the shadow of Christ's preachers as they pass by. Clearly, such things which happened then later have ceased. Even by the year 400, they're recognizing this, is, this ended a long time ago. And there are earlier examples of lesser-known church fathers that I could point you to, but the fact is, people in these early days of the church recognized the gift of tongues was not normative and did not continue. So the gift of tongues was not practiced, nor was it believed to continue, for roughly 1,850 years. And although I do not believe that history is the primary way that we should develop our theology, I also believe we shouldn't ignore this fact. Fourth, the Bible tells us that the purpose of the gift of tongues is very different than what we see taking place in churches today. For example, Paul concluded an argument about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22 this way. He says, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Just like we see taking place on the day of Pentecost, the gift of tongues was primarily used as a tool to preach the gospel to those who were otherwise out of reach of the Christians due to the separation of language. It was a sign to show the veracity of the claims of the Christian. But the purpose of the gift was always to point people to the message. It was not to focus on the gift itself. The sign is not the point. The sign points to the point. The gift of tongues is just a sign pointing to the gospel. Fifth, when Paul speaks about tongues, he argues that they must be used for edification, literally for building up the church. The people at the church in Corinth had been abusing the gift of tongues. Where God had given the gift for the purpose of rapidly building the church and creating unity between a diversity of people, the sinful nature of these individuals distorted that gift and used it to divide into the haves and have-nots. Well, I must be a superior Christian because look what I can do. That is the exact opposite purpose that Christ gave this gift through the Holy Spirit. Some had the gift of tongues, others did not, but Paul makes it very clear when speaking about the dangers of using such a gift during a gathering, he gave this policy about what you must do in order to practice in 1 Corinthians 14, 27 through 28. He says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So even the gift of tongues, if it were continuing today and to be in practice today, they are not permitted to be used unless someone who speaks that language is present and is translating. This, however, is not what I have experienced in the 16 years that I spent in the Pentecostal church movement. Sixth, the Bible actually promises that some of the gifts are going to cease. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 says, As for tongues, they will cease. At this church, we teach and we believe that the gift of speaking in tongues is already ceased. There's much more that could be said about this, but if you want to get more detail or more discussion about what I'm saying right now, first of all, please know that I'm not saying these things to attack you. I'm saying these things because I believe them to be true. So I don't even know who you are. But if you have any disagreements with me about these things, please come let us reason together 
sitting together around the Bible, and let's use the Bible as the arbiter in any dispute. Secondly, I want to say to you, the, the elders are here to talk. We love discussing this kind of theology. We love to have this opportunity. So please don't feel like you're a burden by saying, I just don't get this or I'm not convinced yet. Wonderful. Let us give us you your, our best shot. And then uh, perhaps you might not agree with us, but that's okay. We can continue to agree to disagree as long as you know this is what we believe to be true here at the church. Also, finally, I want to say that if you want to learn more about what the church teaches or believes on this specific issue, you can go to the conference we preached in the fall on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and there are four sessions dealing with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and specifically the fourth session goes much deeper in teaching about the ongoing nature of the gifts. So I would recommend that one to you. Now before we move on to point number three, I simply want to say that the language barrier still exists. Obviously, the fact that we don't speak in tongues creates an issue for us in sharing the gospel cross-culturally and in foreign nations especially. There are still 1.5 billion people on this planet who do not have the Bible in their own language. According to Wycliffe Bible Translators, there are 2,659 languages in the world which only have a portion of the Bible, and there are currently projects working to get the rest of the Bible into their language. But sadly, there are 2,163 known languages that there is not a single verse of the Bible translated into their language. There are many people who cannot know or learn the gospel unless they learn another language first. Missionaries are not simply able to walk into those villages or walk into those regions of the world and speak their language. Proclaiming the gospel to unreached people groups takes years, sometimes decades of dedication to learn and study the grammar and the syntax of a language so that you know how to transmit God's word to them. And it is a worthwhile, worthy act of missionary service. So I want to pause and give you a few brief applications before moving forward to our next point. First, I want you to pray faithfully for missionaries who are on the front line currently in the process of translating the scriptures. I was talking to a friend uh, recently who is from India, and he said to me, the gospel can't be stopped. The Bible's in our language now. The Bible's in our language. They can't stop it. It's so significant. We must continue to pray for those who are translating and continuing to do the work of getting the word of God into other languages. And I'm trying to find a time when my friend Alec Millen, who many of you have met, who is serving currently as a pastor over in Pennsylvania, he used to serve on the board of a Bible translation project in Tanzania. And he has stories to tell about what it looked like to translate the Bible to the Rangi people, who otherwise would never know the gospel. And he told one story that I just want to share briefly with you, of a man who was not saved, who was helping them to translate the Bible from English into the Rangi language. And this man spent 12 years, I believe is the, the amount of time he said, serving to help them get the language correct. And after 12 years, God saved that man who was helping them translating the Bible into the Rangi language. This is a worthwhile endeavor. And now that man who was helping them for the sake of money is helping them to proclaim the gospel to his people in their language. It is a worthwhile effort. Pray for such people. Secondly, do not ever for a single moment take for granted the great blessing of having the Bible in your language. God has generously given us instant access to the Bible. If you have a phone, you can pull that out and you can find dozens if not hundreds of translations in English where you can read and understand the Word of God. 
English is right at our fingertips. The English Bible is right there. Everything since we've got the King James Version, it's just constant. There is work getting this into an understandable translation for us to read and study. And that's why we should be so thankful to God. And the fact that we have this and we put it on a shelf and act like it's not a big deal is a great sin. As the old saying goes, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Please do not overlook or take for granted the fact that God has been so gracious to this people and to this place that we have free access and legal access to his word. Third, how can we go beyond ourselves and reach beyond this little local church to other people in order to proclaim the gospel beyond English? Well, I'm happy to announce a little commercial break. This very evening, we're going to begin a service in Spanish. Now, I don't know all the details of what it's going to look like, but at 6 p.m. on Sunday evenings, we're planning to have a Spanish service because we have recognized a need for those who cannot really grasp what's going on here in, in English. And we want to be able to serve them with this ministry. So for the sake of serving them, at least for the summer, we're going to begin a Spanish-speaking service in the evenings. And I have other people who can preach in Spanish who are around the area who are going to be able to come and serve that for the most part. And also I want to just recognize Jonathan Rodriguez. Where are you, Jonathan? Is he up here? Is he all the way in the back. Please encourage him and say thank you to him. He's going to be helping out with translation. Um, it is a huge blessing that he was so rapidly willing to invest his service to be able to help out with a service like this one. So, I know what it's like to be in another country and not understand much of what is taking place in a sermon. The time that I was in Brazil or the time that I was in Italy, I was only getting fragments of what is taking place. And as I said before, missing even one word can completely distort a sentence. Missing even one sentence can completely distort a sermon. So it's very important that we have something available for those who have the need of being able to hear the uh, the gospel in the language of Spanish. So if you have any people that are currently in need of that kind of a service, please send them here tonight on Sunday nights, 6 p.m. And that date or the uh, time may change in the future, but for now that's what we're doing. And I want to ask you as a church to pray for this kind of ministry, that we want to be able to serve Long Island and we want to reach all of the people who are here. Let's move now to our third point in the text this morning. And that is the goal of the Holy Spirit. One of the critiques that people, especially Pentecostals and Charismatics, uh, give to people in our camp is that we do not believe in the Holy Spirit. They will say that we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. But we want to worship the Holy Spirit. We want to recognize His ministry. We want to serve Him appropriately. And we want to do this the way the Bible teaches us to worship Him. And one of the key features of the Holy Spirit is that he never, ever draws attention to himself. His role is always to give glory and honor to the Son, Jesus Christ. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus described the goal of the Holy Spirit to his disciples this way in John fourteen twenty six. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What is the goal of the Holy Spirit for the apostles? To bring to remembrance the teaching of Christ. The Holy Spirit is active in our salvation, he is active in our sanctification, and he is active in our glorification in various ways, but never does the Bible reveal that he is to be preeminent in our focus of worship. 
Rather, it is Jesus Christ who is to be central. That is why, that's what Jesus was getting at, actually, in John 16, 14 through 15, when he said, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? He is simply declaring the glory of Christ. Now, imagine for a moment that you go to a Broadway play. I imagine most of you have probably gone to a play or to an opera at some point. And imagine for a moment, it's like the big moment of the play. It's when the main character comes out and sings a solo, and the spotlight swings down and focuses right on that character as they're singing. And you turn around and stare at the spotlight. And you begin looking up into that whatever you call that area in the back where that spotlight sits and you begin shaking the person next to you and saying, do you see that light? Can you see how bright that light is? That is amazing. Can you imagine how many amps are going through that thing right now? That is the brightest light I've ever seen. And you're like shaking them and they're like trying to get you off. And, and you start standing up and applauding for the light and you keep saying how brilliant it is. And the guy on stage is like, this is supposed to be pointing to me. This is about me. You would never do that because that's absurd and that's awkward and weird. Everybody knows that the spotlight is pointing away from itself and pointing to someone else. Likewise, we never see the Holy Spirit seeking attention for himself. But like we just read, his goal is to give all glory and all honor and all praise and all preeminence to the one that is Christ. He is pointing and aiming his focus on Jesus. So there are two dangers to be avoided here in terms of worship of the Holy Spirit. The first is the danger of worshiping the Holy Spirit in a way that is contrary to Scripture by setting all of our focus on Him. Perhaps you have been to churches where this is the issue, where you go in and everything is all focused and the attention is all focused on the Spirit, and ultimately what happens when that takes place every time I have ever seen it is the attention actually moves away from the Holy Spirit and into experience. Because the way that they believe the Holy Spirit acts is experientially through emotion. And so it actually moves away even from the Spirit and into the realm of emotion very quickly. But I do not think that is the main danger in this church. So I'm not just talking to you so that you can be aware of those other places. What about us? How can we appropriately serve and worship the Spirit? There's a danger that we have to avoid, and that is the one I think is more likely the issue here, and that is to completely ignore the Holy Spirit, to go on like the Holy Spirit doesn't exist at all. Uh, This summer, we're going to be gathering together on Wednesday nights for Wednesday night worship as a church, and each week we're going to be learning about one of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. This is not fruit that you just conjure up in and of yourself. This is not fruit that a non-Christian can truly produce. Please understand, this is fruit produced unnaturally and outside of us by the Holy Spirit who is working through us. It is only generated by Him. But not only is He the one that gives us the fruit of the Spirit, it is the Spirit who convicts us according to John 16.8. It is the Spirit who regenerates us, according to John 16.13. It is the Spirit who sanctifies us, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. It is the Spirit who assists us in our prayers, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 27. It is the Spirit who brings unity to the body, which we desperately want and need. That comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. It is the Spirit who seals us with a guarantee for eternal life, 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It is the Spirit who reveals 
reveals the deep things of God to us. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10. Do you long for that? That is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who causes us to be formed into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It is the Spirit who gives us spiritual fortitude. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5. It is the Spirit who gives us joy. Do you want that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6. It is the Holy Spirit who conforms us into being like the Lord. Acts chapter 9 verse 31. And it is the Spirit who gives us everlasting life. Galatians chapter 6 verse 8. We must recognize the great work of the third person of the Trinity. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. It is everywhere in the New Testament. The Spirit of God is the one at work in the church. And I hope this list helps you to lift your eyes to heaven and to be grateful for our triune God who has worked together for our good and for his glory. Which brings us now to our final point of the morning, the gathered church. Look again at Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles, but jump down to verse 41. This is the conclusion of what takes place after Peter has preached. This is what we read about the development of the church. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added to uh, <clears throat> there were added that day about 3000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved the result of Peter's sermon was that 3,000 people were added to their number as time went on. And the Lord kept adding to them those who were being saved. To close out this sermon, I want to simply zoom in on three final things by way of application. First, notice that there is a subtle but clear nod to the fact that those who were being saved were being numbered with the believers. Now, although the word membership is not used here, there is evidence that these people were committing themselves and giving their names to be listed among those who would fellowship and commit to fellowship with the church. Who is it that these the, are the 3,000? Are those being added day by day? What are they being added to? They're being added to those who have committed themselves to serving and loving one another. Perhaps you're a Christian, but you're not yet a covenant member who is faithfully committing yourself to the local body. I want to call you to truly stand on what you believe and hold fast and firm to what we are called to be as a church member, unified as the body of Christ. The scripture calls us members one of another. In fact, I'm going to make it very easy for you to learn more about this because directly following our service, about 10 minutes after we say the last amen, we're going to have a time where I'm going to be sharing with those who are interested in learning about membership, what membership looks like here at the church and how that process works with us. So I would love for you to stick around and learn what it means to be a committed member of the body of Christ here at our local church. Also, one of the key factors that you will find repeatedly through the book of Acts is the selflessness that is supposed to be common in the life of a believer. If you truly believe that Christ left the treasure of heaven and he came here to suffer in our place, then giving of yourself should be comparatively very easy. 
There will be occasions when a brother or sister in our church has a financial need. And I, I, I know that you always have got up for that. I encourage you uh, that the church, as we have opportunity to serve people with needs, that you arise to the occasion. I want to ask that you see the example of the early church, that they were willing to literally sell their property so that people who were traveling from other nations who had come from Pontus and Asia and Galatia and Fergie and Pamphylia who came there and heard the gospel that day and were saved so they didn't have to go home immediately to their own countries but they could stay and be part of the family of God and they stay there all the way until Acts chapter 8 verse 1. There are also going to be occasions when we can show hospitality to interns or visitors or missionaries who need housing and you may have space to share with them. And I implore you, look at the example here of the early church who would give of themselves in that way. There will be occasion when you can house someone. There will also be opportunities when you can serve those who have relatives who have passed away. Give up of your evening of entertainment so that you can go love your brother in Christ in attending a funeral or a wake. See the example of the early church who gave of, their to- gave of their time and their talent and their treasure. But ultimately, I don't want you to set your attention on the early church. Pretty soon, these people are going to mess everything up. You don't have to get too far into the book of Acts before you see these people get a lot of things wrong really soon. But I want you to look past them, look beyond them, and look to Christ. It is Christ who is the ultimate example of hospitality. It is Christ who is the ultimate example of love. And finally, I want to draw your attention to one final truth. Look again at verses 42 through 43. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice that it does not say that awe came upon them when many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. It says, And many wonders were being done. This is important because it indicates that awe was not arising from the miracles or the signs or the gift of tongues even for that matter. The awe of God was arising from the teaching of the apostles. The awe arose because they dedicated themselves to focusing on what it meant that Christ rose for the ungodly, died for the ungodly and rose for their justification. Brothers and sisters, I fear that this is the biggest application that we need to apply in this room. I think there are many saved people in this place who have lost their awe of God. Although you would never say it out loud, maybe you think that you figured out God well enough that you don't need to think about him that hard anymore. You don't really need to study anymore. You've kind of got all your ducks theologically in a row already. Maybe you think he's familiar enough that you don't need to engage with him through prayer. Maybe you think that he's tame enough that you don't need to fear him when you sin. Or worse than all of these, perhaps your week is so filled by other things that you don't think about him at all. Brothers and sisters, dedicate yourselves to the teaching of the apostles. How do you do that? Sunday school answers. You've got the word of God. Don't ignore it. This is the teaching of the apostles. That's why we have our 27 books of the New Testament. Read them. Get your nose in the book. Do not overlook it. And brothers and sisters, I encourage you to dedicate yourselves to the teaching and the preaching of the word of God and pray that the spirit would refresh your eyes so that you see Christ rightly with a renewed sense of awe. Paul Tripp says his, in his book, um, that's appropriately named Awe, he says, when awe of God has captured your heart, ministry will fill your schedule. You won't need the church to schedule ministry for you. You will approach your work, your marriage, your parenting, extended family, friendships, and community with a ministry mentality. 
May God fill our church with that kind of awe, with men and women who are so in awe of God that they willingly and even longingly give up anything and everything necessary to know Christ and to make him known. And that is the goal of the Holy Spirit, to show Christ. So let's see him clearly now as we pray. God, I ask that you would make your, your son known in this place. For those who don't know you, I pray that you would, through the gospel that is proclaimed, show them the glory of Christ and their need for repentance. And God, for those who do know you, I pray that this would be enlivening to our spirits, that we would be rejoicing in the fact that we know who you are. God, give us a greater sense of your glory and your majesty. Help us to have our jaw fall to the floor each and every time we consider your grace. Help us not to get used to the fact that we have been saved, but to constantly say, it is only by your great love that we can approach the throne. God, I pray that today as we come to a text that is challenging like this one, if there are any conversations that need to be had, any questions or any confusion, God, I pray that you would give opportunity for clarity through ongoing discussion. And God, I pray that you would please bless our church with unity like we see here in the early church as they were surrounding themselves with the teaching of the apostles. Lord, I thank you that if we could trace our genealogy back, it would go all the way to this day that we could see that somebody told us about the gospel and somebody told that person about the gospel and we could trace that back. And perhaps in heaven, Lord, you may even show us how exactly the gospel has come all the way from this day to us. We pray, Lord, that we would not be so flippant to think that we can let that ball drop. I ask that you would help us to uh, proclaim the gospel to each and every person that we know that we would be able to continue that genealogy of those who know Christ, that the next generation might arise in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.